Anyway, uh, welcome this morning. Uh, my name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here. Um, we are getting ready to do something. Uh, we're still buzzing. Here we're still, I feel like we're, I'm going to take you all on a, like experience here, <laughs> meditative experience. Close your eyes. Um, this actually feels really appropriate because this morning we actually are going to do uh, something that's a bit more of an experience. Um, so, you know what? I'm still buzzing and y'all are going to hear that the entire sermon. So, why don't we do this? I think if I move away from the speakers or get behind them, they'll stop buzzing. There we go. It's better. We're still hearing it. Okay. I'm sorry about that. Well, welcome uh, this morning. So we're going to be doing something different besides just messing with our speakers. Uh, we're going to be actually, so uh, m- most Sundays, right, we, we go through sometimes overly complicated theological texts, and I, I parse them out to you guys, right? We, we explore all of the different words. Uh, we explore the different theology uh, that a certain passage in the Bible has, and we, we try to do our best to kind of expand on it, elaborate on it, uh, and demonstrate, like, all the different lines of thoughts that go into the text, But this morning, we're going to do something that, in particular, I am extremely excited about, uh, is I'm going to tell you guys a story. We're going to do a story. So, uh, like all stories, uh, it's full of different kinds of characters. There's a plot. There's uh, different characters experiencing different kinds of emotions, different kinds of things going on in their life. There's despair and pain. There's disillusionment and frustration, but there's also hope. And so this morning, I'm going to be telling us a story uh, that's actually very ancient, right? And so with with very ancient stories, uh, as with all stories, I want to ask us to do something this morning. I want us to actually, as much as we can, take our, like, theology caps off for just a second and listen to the story. Like, put your imagination caps on. I think that was from Reading Rainbow. So wherever my 90s kids are, y'all remember that with, right? Put your mat, like for just a second, as we enter into this story, I want us to, as best as we can, like try to put ourselves into the lives of the characters, which is what a story is, right? That's what a story does. That's why we tell stories. That's why we listen to stories. That's why we love stories is the characters and the stories that experience things we often can relate to in different kinds of ways. And so this is going to be a story of both despair and hope, of both brokenness and profound beauty. Uh, And with all stories, uh, context is going to be really important. Right? So uh, I have a three year old, and some of y'all have heard this before. Uh, contacts really matters with a three year old. Uh, I remember a couple months ago, I came home from a meeting. She was sitting at our table, and she looked up at me and she goes, Hey, big boy. And I was like, I'm sorry. And like my first impulse was like, Oh, good Lord. Like some kid at school's watching Netflix without the parental controls on and is learning all kinds of things and then like sharing it to the class. But really what was going on with her is that she had been learning like big and little, right? So there's old, which she she, she uses old and young and as big and little. Uh, And she'd been learning boys and girls. So like when I walked in the door, I'm old and I'm a boy. So she's like, you are a big boy. Like that's what she was trying to say. But without all that other context of kind of like what was going on in her world, I was lost as to what she was really trying to say. 
and I'm not 100% sure she knew exactly what she was trying to say. Like, she's kind of learning that, right? But, like, the context helped provide some clarity as to what was actually happening. And so this morning, what I'm going to do before we actually, we're actually going to close the sermon with the story. Uh, and I'm going to try and talk to you guys a little bit before we even get to the text, which as those words come out of my mouth, I realize I pretty much do every week. Um, I'm known for my long intros to sermons. I apologize about that. <laughs> Forgive me. But like, there's going to be a little bit of a longer intro because I want us to, as best as I can this week, I'm going to try and help us grab some of the context of the story. Because the reality is you're reading a story that was written 3,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, which is, is 6,000 miles from here. You're going to be reading about uh, characters in this story who have a very different cultural worldview than you. They live in a very different world than you do. And yet, if we'll, if we'll dive into some of what is going on in their story, we're going to see some of the profound, like, just both the sadness that they lived with, but then some of the profound hope uh, that they encounter in this story. Okay, so, so most of your stories, particularly in your Old Testament, whenever we do Old Testament, they tend to be larger, they're about like the nation of Israel or kings or you have like all of these kind of like big, profound geopolitical things happening in a story. But this story is about one family. So it's kind of like a smaller view. And this story is going to start, the story is going to start by telling us this story occurs at the time of the judges. And I know for you guys, uh, that, that may not mean a whole lot. And by the way, if, if you're here this morning, you're like, I don't know what judges are. I'm not even sure I know what the Old Testament are. Uh, I just want to say, first off, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome. There are a lot of us who are unfamiliar with the Old Testament and are certainly unfamiliar with the book of Judges. So if, th if that's you, if you're like, I don't know, um, part of what I want to do this morning is whether you've been reading your Bible your whole life or you're like, I have no idea what happened after Genesis, like I've heard some of that before, but nothing else. Um, my goal this morning is like uh, for both of us to be able to find space in this story to understand and to see what's happening here. We have lots of people around who are unfamiliar with their Bibles or they're learning their Bibles or they're learning Christianity for the first time. If that's you here this morning, I just want to say you're absolutely welcome here. Uh, I want to do my best to help um, what is going to be a very anxious story become a little less intimidating. So, so the book starts by telling us it occurs in the time of the judges. Here's really what that means. Uh, right, so I'm going I'm to give us a little context of some key pieces uh, of this story uh, before I actually even introduce the characters. Um, you're like, you haven't even told us who's in it yet. I will. Hold on. Um, but it's going to open up by saying it occurs during the time of the judges. What that means is this, right? So some of you know your creation stories. God created the, uh, the heavens and the earth in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. Right, but that own creation that God created and like his goodness and his kindness and like his loving uh, like grace that he poured out onto creation, that creation rebelled against him. It said, we want something that is ours, not yours. We want to worship something besides you, principally ourselves. And so creation essentially rebelled against God, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. After that, all of creation began to crumble when humanity pushed God away and said, we want to worship ourselves and our own agendas and our own stories uh, over what it is that you want for us. What happened is the world broke. There was, and Nicole preached, uh, did a great job preaching about this last week. There was relational discord. There was spiritual discord. Like there was brokenness that entered into the world in all different kinds of ways. 
but God in his love and his mercy for his creation, which was rebelling actively against him, was actively showing him disdain and hate and violence and opposition in his love and in his mercy, would not leave creation there. And so he began to create, he wanted to begin to create something new, and he did this through a nation called Israel, first by calling a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah. We're not going to go into all of those stories, but essentially what happened is God called this nation that he formed through Abraham, not, by the way, because this nation was more powerful than all the ones or more moral than all the other ones or like a better pick, nor was it necessarily because they were less moral than all the other ones or less like of a pick than all the other ones. He called this nation because in his love he wanted to create something new which is honestly how most of us here uh, have been called. I'm going to say most of us, all of us, right? So, so m most of us, we think when God calls me or wants to do something with my life, it's either because I've been really, really good or it might be because I've been really, really bad. The problem with both of those minds, and not because he loves me, the problem with both of those mindsets I'm called because I've been really, really good, and I'm really, really religious, or I'm really, really moral, or I've been called because I'm really, really bad, and I'm a total train wreck, and I can't get any part of my life together. The problem with both, like seeing both of those as reasons at which God calls you, is that if you've been really good, you'll then have to spend the rest of your relationship with God protecting and defending your goodness, fearful that if you lose it, you'll lose the reason he called you. Likewise, if you were a train wreck and you're like, that's why God called me because he had pity on me. I'm such a mess. Now I've got my life together. You'll be constantly afraid of losing what it is you think you have now. And fear of losing that will be the thing that controls your Christian life. And the reality is you were called by God not because you were good nor because you were such a train wreck. You were called by God because he loves you the foundation and the peace at which he has called you. That's why he, that's how he calls this nation of Israel, not because they were so impressive, nor because they were just completely unimpressive. He calls them out of his love for them to create and begin to recreate something new in a broken world. But honestly, even after this nation is called in love, this is the nation of Israel in your Bibles. And by the way, the, the nation of Israel, I know there's all kinds of, you're like, well, isn't there Israel still? Like, the, we're, we're talking about like an historical nation of Israel in the, in the biblical text. I'm not going to uh, go into all that discussion of what does that now mean for the nation and all of that. But when, for this, for, for the sake of our discussion this morning, what we see is even after God has called the nation of Israel, they continue to rebel against him. They continue to take him for granted. They continue to act violently towards him and towards one another. And so the book of Judges is written, and essentially what happens, and it's, it's, it's an awful story, to be honest. Um, so many of us, um, our Bibles are not nearly as shy and polite as we are, uh, and especially in modern church culture. Uh, and so this story of Judges ends up um, with God calling this group of people, them continuously pushing him out, pushing him out, rebelling, rebelling, rebelling. And by the end of the book, it is so violent and so vile because they have pushed out God and there is no love in the land that you begin to see vulnerable people being taken advantage of. And the story, the book of Judges literally ends with somebody being uh, taken advantage of and then cut into pieces and then sent to all the other tribes in the nation. Like, it's this long descent into violence and chaos and hurt and pain. 
And so this is where our story sets up. It's going to throw these characters in this story into this kind of world. This is the world they're living in in the time of the book of Judges. Uh, so um, we'll do our first family tree slide here. Uh, so this is going to be a story about a single family. So let me introduce the characters to you just now. Uh, so I took genetics a long time ago when I was in pre-med, and I kind of forgot how to do family trees. Uh, so if this doesn't look 100% right, I'm sorry, I tried. I know there, there's all stuff like with dotted lines and sawed lines and what they're supposed to represent. I can't remember what it is, but here's how I'm going to walk us through it. So uh, this story is going to open up with a family, and there's a patriarch, uh, Amilimelech, and, and then the matriarch, Naomi. Uh, and, and their names are going to be significant, okay? So in our Western culture, all of y'all probably have, like you've probably at some point Googled, what does my name mean? Um, but like that's all you've ever done with your name. It doesn't really define you beyond like a Google search. Then when like you're out with your friends, you're like, hey, did you know my name means whatever? And then your friends are like, that doesn't make sense at all, right? Like you've kind of had like, it's never been like a thing that defines you. But in this culture, your name meant everything. It wasn't just the thing that people called you. It was like a part of your identity. It's how people saw you and related to you. It actually defined your personality and your character. Maybe similarly, it's not a, not, no analogy is perfect, right? But maybe similarly to like the way some of us are with colleges, right? Like I went to this college, here's my college ring, right? And there's kind of like, as soon as you say that, everybody knows what that means, especially if you're an Aggie, right? Like everybody kind of has a sense of like, okay, there's the, like I get what this person probably likes, cowboy boots and football and right, whatever else, barbecue, whatever your school was. Um, this is similarly like the names have more to do with them than just like what they're called. So the story starts out very promising with two people, Elimelech and Naomi, married to each other. And their names mean my God is king, and Naomi, Emelech's name means my God is king, and Naomi's name means pleasant. So you have my God is king, married to pleasant. So the first thing in your head is like, this is going to be a really good story. Right? You have two people with very positive names married to one another. Okay, I want to just stop right here and say this. I think this is how many of us, when we become Christians, think our Christian life will go. My God is king and pleasant. These two things should go together. If my God is my king, my life will work out in the way that I want it to, would like it to, feel encouraged by, feel good by. Right, this is the first question as we jump into this story. Um, I want us to kind of be aware of as the author's kind of setting this up. But what happens is my God is king and pleasant, they have two children, Malon and Kilion, and their names mean sickly and frail. So my God is king and pleasant have two, two sons that are both sickly and frail. And they marry two Moabite women. We're going to talk a little bit more about this next week uh, as to the significance of why the author will tell us they're Moabites. Um, but they marry two Moabite women, women Orpah and Ruth. Okay, and as the story goes on, we can move to the next slide. Uh, and I forgot how you're supposed to indicate deceased, but I just put red lines through there. So, uh, Elimelech dies first. My God is king dies. And then the two sons also die, sickly 
and frail. Leaving Mara, Naomi, who will at some point in the story change her name from pleasant to Mara, which means bitter. She will be left with her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth uh, and Orpah, which this is not unverified, but I heard that this is who Oprah was named after, but like there was some confusion with the letters. I I don't know if that's actually true or not, but like Orpah and Ruth are left with their mother-in-law, Naomi, who will change her name to Bitter. And why this is significant, uh, as I want us to see here, is how this story starts, starts with the way that most of us picture our lives with God going. My God is king and pleasant. And so as we read this story and we watch Naomi slip and fall into bitterness and despair when we hear her say the words, don't call me uh, Naomi anymore, call me Mara, call me bitter. What I want us to hear and see is what I think many of us, is the disillusionment that many of us will experience during suffering in our life. Once more, the ways that we could kind of theologicalize this, like use theology, in this, like the ways that we could philosophize it, the ways that we could like offer some kind of rationalization for what's happening here, these go out the window. None of this is supposed to make rational sense about what's happening in the story as we read it. So this is something particularly in the West. Uh, I think the church is completely um, sometimes underdeveloped and is our understanding of, of just suffering. So we, we like to use stuff like theology to rationalize why things happen. Okay, and there's all kinds of, and th- this is one of the most common pastoral conversations that I have and continue to have. Uh, and I think it's one of the conversations that even some of our groups continue to wrestle with. Of, wait, if God is good, my God is king, uh, why is this happening? Like, what do I do with that? And what the story as we read it this morning will do is, it is it's going to kind of back us into a corner where the answer is not readily available. Okay, well, I want to, so a couple, a couple of things. Um, uh, we are uncomfortable with this idea. We like the idea of saying, like, God is in control. Everything happens for a reason. He will use all broken, right? Like, and I'm not saying some of these things are not untrue, by the way. What I am saying is these are the things that we jump to quickly when our life has become disillusioned or we can't explain suffering, right? When we've hit sort of a corner. And I want to argue this morning, and I, honestly, this is so, I've been very... Um, I shared a little bit about this in group this morning when we were praying for you guys before we come. But like this, I've just prayed about this this week. This is something that um, I feel sometimes we miss is that not everything can be theologized or philosophized or rationalized in a way that will bring, like that will protect us from bitterness and disillusionment. The story, by the way, will offer protection from, not protection from this, it'll offer hope in the midst of it, and we'll talk about that next. But what I want to do here, honestly, and, and I know this is, I'm being heavy-handed, but I want to back us into a corner a little bit. Of Wait, does, does it, things that happen, can I theologize all of it? Can I rationalize it? 
Can I explain all of it away? Is it, is it just as simple as saying, my God is king, God's in control? Is that, is that what I cling to, to protect myself from bitterness in the midst of suffering? I, I remember the first time that I encountered this question. Uh, so I, I was a counselor for six years before becoming a pastor. Uh, and and I, was, I was, the program I was in, everybody knew I was the other Christian counselor, so sometimes Christian clients, I would, I would get assigned those clients. Um, and I'm changing, as clinicians do, I'm going to change any identifiable details around. So uh, even if this person were hearing this story this morning, I'm actually convinced they wouldn't know this is who I'm talking about. But um, I'm going to share the essence of it. Is, um, this, this, this young man had come to us, and uh, he uh, was, uh, had a brother, and their parents were killed uh, in a car accident. And they were young, but they were old enough that the social worker the parents didn't leave a will of like, what do we do? The social worker gave them a choice. Which family would you like to go to? Like, where, where would you, where do you want? They gave the, the, the boys a choice uh, and they each chose different families. And his brother went to a, a stable home. He was given a future, he ended up with academic scholarships to an Ivy League school. My client, on the other hand, signed up to go to an abusive home and didn't know it. It was hidden at the time, not even the social worker picked up on it and spent most of his life hiding in a sleeping bag at night just to keep himself safe. And so by the time I had seen him in, in my late 30s, uh, in his late 30s, sorry, he was asking this question, my life has been nothing but addiction and pain and abuse. And it all seems like it boiled down to a, ch a choice that we made as children. And I remember him asking me, he's like, why did God let this happen? Like it was like, it was like a fork in the road. It was like a flip of a coin, a roll of the dice. Not like he couldn't have tipped anybody off. Couldn't have tipped the social worker off. And I remember it was the first time I didn't have an answer. God is in control. Wouldn't help. Everything happens for a reason. Didn't help. Right? There was no way uh, to rationalize or theologize like the grief and the disillusionment and the pain and, the, and the, just everything that had happened. Right? My wife is a, is a social worker uh, who works with grieving families. Uh, usually twice a week, once or twice a week, she sits with a mother as their child dies in the hospital. If you've ever heard a mother pray for life for their child and then those prayers just hit the ceiling and go nowhere you will know that there is some way that suffering and pain in the world and disillusionment work like where you cannot there's just no like we can't give answers there are pains right and I asked her we talked a lot a great deal about this week because she because oftentimes she will work then with the parents for for um, months and months and months afterwards as they grieve and she's like, there are just some pains that just don't heal. There's no silver lining. There's no way you can look at this and go, well, some good will come out of it. <laughs> you can't. I remember um, one of our, my favorite Christian artists in the 90s, Stephen Curtis Chapman. He had a daughter who was, uh, was killed in a car accident as a young girl. Uh, and they were on, he was famous enough that they were on Good Morning America at some point. And the, the, the hostess asked them, said, because the, the daughter had been adopted, and so all these families had started raising money and to promote adoption and all this. And she asked them, like, well, all the good that's come out of, of this, does that provide any hope or comfort for, 
for you. And I love I, I her courage and the honesty. She said, no, I just want my daughter back. And so as we read this story this, this, this morning, um, it's easy to hear when we get to the point where Naomi changes her name to Bitter. It's like, oh, well, she's frustrated with how things are working out. That's not what's happening at all. She's come to a place in her life where she's like, I don't even want to be associated with goodness anymore. When you look at me, do not associate good things. Okay, so, so this part of the sermon I know is heavy-handed, and I've thought a lot about this, um, but uh, I want to do that because the next piece that we're offered uh, in the story is something else that will come in response to this, and this is this word called hesed, uh, and uh, we can go to the next, uh, next, okay, it's already up there, hesed. So what happens in the story is Orpah will, will move off, she'll go home back to her people, uh, but Ruth will stay. And the words that, the, that this author, and Ruth is, by the way, the hero of this, the heroine of the story. Uh, it's about her. The book's name is Ruth. She will say to Naomi, I will go where you go. Like, I will endure with you. And the word that the author will use for this is hesed. Okay, so that word is notoriously difficult to translate from Hebrew. And over and over and over again, that word hesed uh, is often referred to uh, as steadfast love. Uh, I would use, and this is my translation, uh, I would use the word like relentless grace or relentless goodness. It's like this goodness that does not quit, it does not give up, it does not bend, it endures. This word hesed, uh, John, uh, so this, by the word, so one of the reasons this is difficult to translate, and it's going to be difficult in the story, uh, is that the translators, this word typically is described of God's character. God typically describes his own character or it is described. So like Psalms 136 uh, finishes, every line of the, of the psalm finishes with uh, steadfast love. And we can move to, to, move to the psalms. Uh, there's, there's Psalms uh, uh, 136, I think there's 22 verses in it. And every single verse ends with steadfast love of God. This love of God that does not quit, that does not stop, that pursues at all costs, even to itself, great cost to itself. Your New Testament writers pick up on this as the kind of way that God loves. Uh, in the very beginning of John, uh, John 1.14, uh, when John says, we've seen this glory full of grace and truth, that word grace uh, is charis. It's a Greek word, but it often pairs with the Hebrew word hesed. And what John will say is God, like God coming in Christ is like this steadfast, relentless love poured out on top of more relentless love. And he goes on in verse 16 to say it's like, it's like grace upon grace. He describes it to like this ocean that cannot hold it back. It pursues, it does not up, it does not let up, it does not quit, it does not go away. And, and so the, the problem with uh, the story, and I know I sound snobby when I pick on translators, and I try not to do that often. I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm just snobby. But like, uh, like the problem is, is your translators, the word hesed will be used to describe Ruth. But your translators are going to get a little skittish with that uh, because they're like, that's an attribute of God, not people. And so they will use the word kindness, and I think that word is too soft. 
I, your author and he, your, the wrote Ruth, was intentional about this. They're trying to draw this, the, a, a connection here for us. This hesed, in which God loves creation, pursues creation, forgives, and pours out goodness, is seen in the actions of Ruth. She will pour out hesed on Naomi, on Mara, who is bitter. And so as we read this translation, I'm, I'm using NLT, but NIV, ESV, all the other translations, they always use kindness. And I think it placates, because they're uncomfortable with the idea of a person uh, reflecting the attributes of God. Uh, and that's exactly, I think, what the author wants to see, is in the midst of Naomi's bitterness, the hope that is offered, offered is the hesed, the unrelenting goodness that Ruth will show her. I will go where you go. Your God will be my God. Like I, where I, you die, I will die. It is this, I will not quit. I will not go. I will not give up. It is a unrelenting grace, an unrelenting goodness. This is what hesed means. Okay, so uh, I've given you guys uh, as much context as I can here. Uh, I'm going to read the first part of the story. We're going to be in it for four weeks. But essentially, here, here's, I'm not telling you the ending quite yet, but here's what will happen. Is Ruth, in the midst of all of this suffering and the time of the judges, when there are people cutting each other apart because they're violent, there is this Moabite woman named Ruth who will show Hesed in this situation, this unrelenting goodness, which isn't, it isn't, like, that's what Hesed is. It's this, it's not fair. It's not, like, based on, like, what is deserved. It's this undeserved, I'm going to go with you, stick with you. I will not quit or give up. And when she does this, as we read the story over the next couple of weeks, what we'll find is that her hesed begets more hesed. It actually inspires uh, other characters in the story to begin showing hesed. And by the end of the story, all of the characters will be redeemed, right? restored. That's a, I'm, not, I'm trying to some shameless marketing plug there. But like, that's why we've named our church Restore, is because this is one of those, like, I believe Hesed is this thing at which, like, when poured out, begets more Hesed and leads to redemption. And this is how the story will go. Is that when Ruth shows Hesed, Boaz will eventually show, and we haven't met him yet, we'll meet him later, but like the other characters begin to show Hesed, and by the end of the story, bitter Mara is redeemed. There's restoration. There's goodness that comes, this provision from God. So the other last little uh, note on, on Ruth is that uh, like Ruth is one of those stories in your Old Testament where God's not mentioned very much, actually. But it's not implied that he's not working. It's going to be implied that he's working through the hesed of Ruth. Okay, so, so, so all that context for you this morning. Um, I'm going to read this story. What I want us to do as much as you can, maybe close your eyes if you need to. Um, don't fall asleep, but like close your eyes if you need. That's why we, it's really well lit. You guys can't fall asleep. Um, um, but like close your eyes if you need to. Uh, like picture this story. Like I, again, like I'm going to give, we'll get more context as the weeks go. But like for right now, if I break the story apart, if I preach from it exegetically, like a letter from Paul, I'll ruin it. It's not how stories are meant to go. So I'm going to read the first part of this story, uh, keeping in mind, I want us to feel the weight of what Naomi will carry, and I want us to feel the power of what Ruth will show through Hesed. 
this morning. Uh, hopefully some of the words of these characters, uh, I'm hoping will kind of come alive for us in the story. So Ruth 1, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One, mar one married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilian died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughter-in-law got ready to leave to Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-laws, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took to the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness, your hesed to your husbands and to me. The word kindness should be, I mean, this is the only place I'll stop in the story of the word, it's hesed, this unrelenting goodness that you have shown to me. May the Lord bless you with security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you. Because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again, they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. 
Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there, I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer? And the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. So Naomi returned to Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let me pray for us and I'll invite worship to come back up as we close today. <coughs> Father, um, thank you for your hesed, your unrelenting, unwielding goodness towards us, relentless grace, relentless love that pursues us, even at great cost to itself. Father, as we dive into the story of Ruth, her heroism, her courage, and more than anything, her reflection of you and hesed in the midst of suffering and pain, would you help us to emulate her who is emulating you? Would you help us to be like that towards one another, to pursue Hesed as a church? Father, sometimes theology and philosophy and Hallmark cards go so far, but there are other parts of our lives that we feel pretty confused by, pretty disillusioned with. Father, in those moments, could we seek Hesed out for one another? Father, would you open our hearts to receiving Hesed from one another? This unrelenting goodness, this love that pursues at all costs, that goes wherever we go, that suffers however we suffer. Father, we need this. I admit just my own hypocrisy in this, my own inability to do this, even with the people that I supposedly love the most and care about the most. Hesed is rarely on my mind. Father, could it be the thing that we pursue in our marriages and in our families and with our children and with our church and our small groups and our discipleship and everything else that we do? Forgive us for the ways that we don't know how to do that. Would you show us through the courage of Ruth over the next four weeks how to provide for one another through Hesed? 
make this story come alive to us and teach us. We love you. We need you. Show us how to love each other. Pray all of these things in your name.